Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, this is Dad. And this is Mom. And, and we're, we're executive, executive producers, producers of the History Goes Bump podcast. Did you hear that? I'm sure it was nothing. If you'd like to support the show, check out the support the show tab. Dave, did you hear that? And just finish this part so we can get out of here. Check out the tab at historygoesbump.com. Let's get out of here. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 204th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we have a location that was suggested to us by our listener, Ivy Johnson. And this is Ernestine and Hazel's Juke Joint in Memphis, Tennessee. A lot of the history that's involved with this location has to do with the blues. So very cool to get into that. We're Looking forward to sharing that with you guys and a lot of the hauntings that are going on there as well. This place has a lot of things going bump in the night, especially around the jukebox. And those aren't just the tunes coming from the jukebox, are they, Diane? No. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Jesse with just an eye. Hey, Jesse with just an eye. Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. We have two Eric's, Eric S. Hello, Eric S. And Eric B. And Eric B. Megan. Hey, Megan. Lauren. Hello, Lauren. Janelle. Hello, Janelle. Tiny. Hi, Tiny. Jade. Hey, Jade. Luke. Hello, Luke. Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Chris. Hi, Chris. Joanne. Hello, Joanne. Mark. Hello, Mark. Christopher. Hi, Christopher. And I love this name, Alicia Spotted Bear. And Alicia Spotted Bear, welcome. And now, this moment naughty. There's a twisty stretch of road about 55 miles northwest of New York City in New Jersey known as Clinton Road. It is only 10 miles long, but its reputation is much bigger than that, with lots of people claiming that this is the most cursed road in America, if not the world. There are stories of an old castle, cross castle, being used by devil worshippers, haunted houses, and hellhounds. There's a story that if you toss coins off of a bridge on the road, that a young boy who drowned in the creek below will appear as a ghost and throw them back to you or leave them in the middle of the road. Strange creatures are said to lurk in the woods, and there are even claims of snow falling here in July. A menacing black truck will appear out of nowhere and tailgate aggressively while flashing its lights and then just as you pull aside, it disappears. Lights have been reported over Clinton Reservoir, and claims of UFO sightings have occurred as well. 
This road has just about every bizarre type of legend out there connected to it. That includes its very own Dead Man's Curve. Are any of these claims about Clinton Road true? We're not sure, but the road that runs parallel to Clinton Road and seems more desolate has no legends about it at all. And that certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. During the month of May, on the 20th, aviation logged two amazing feats, one in 1927 and the other in 1932. Charles Lindbergh was a 25-year-old aviator when he took off at 7.52 a.m. from Roosevelt Field in Long Island on May 20, 1927. He was aboard a plane called the Spirit of St. Louis, and he was attempting to win a $25,000 prize for the first solo nonstop flight between New York City and Paris. The journey was 3,600 miles, and he accomplished it in 33 hours. He was called Lucky Lindy and became a worldwide hero after that feat. On May 20th in 1932, Amelia Earhart would follow in the footsteps of Lindbergh as she began a trip that led her to become the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She departed from Newfoundland, Canada and flew 2,026 miles to Londonderry, Ireland. She did it in 13 hours. It's very cool that both of these flights, the first for a woman to fly solo and the first for a man to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic, both happened on the exact same day just five years apart. Memphis, Tennessee is home to the blues. No, 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 no. What were you doing earlier? I was trying to do a little bit of my mama's accent, but it wasn't coming across too good, you know. Try that first line. Memphis, Tennessee. (laughs) Now I can't do it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Let me try to... Memphis. Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee is home to the blues, and it's only fitting that it's full of bars and juke joints where one can hear live music or spin a record on the jukebox. All right. There you go, Denise. <laughs> you did your mommy proud. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's going to say, that sounds like somebody from Kentucky. Well, you know, I can't even do my own accent, so I don't even know where I'm from, much less when I try to do somebody else's accent. Well, it's better than my Irish one that you said sounds like I'm out of New Jersey or something. <laughs> but at least I can say I do have a little bit of Tennessee blood in me. Ernestine and Hazel's Juke Joint is one such establishment. It is said to be the best dive in Memphis and maybe even in Tennessee. The bar was once a place to buy dry goods before transitioning to a cafe and then the current bar. For part of its history, the second floor served as a bordello. The dive has been featured in multiple movies, been written about in Esquire and Playboy magazine, and hosted celebrities. Music itself has an enduring history at this little establishment, and something else that endures here are spirits. There seem to be several that manifest on occasion in various ways. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Ernestine and Hazel's Duke Joint. The Mississippian culture were the first people in the Memphis area. They were mound builders who formed trading villages throughout the Midwest near the Mississippi River. The culture died out around 1600 A.D., with a bit of it remaining near Natchez, Mississippi until the 1800s. 
The Chickasaw arrived after that time. Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto was the first European to explore the Memphis area. The French followed in the 1680s. For the most part, Memphis was disorganized and remained the land of the Chickasaw until the Jackson Purchase in 1818. Shortly thereafter, Memphis would be a departure point along the Trail of Tears. Andrew Jackson joined fellow investors James Winchester and John Overton in founding Memphis on May 22, 1819. They named the city for the ancient Egyptian capital along the Nile River. It was incorporated as a city in 1826. The city grew to be a major market for the cotton business, in fact, the largest inland cotton market in the world, and thus it was a slave market. The Memphis and Charleston Railroad came to town in 1857 and facilitated the export of cotton. During the Civil War, Memphis was a Confederate stronghold until the Union won the Battle of Memphis, and the Union remained until the end of the war. After the war, Memphis suffered a series of blows. Yellow fever nearly wiped out the entire population. People fled the city, and there was an economic collapse that led to bankruptcy. It lost its charter, and it became a taxing district in 1879. Robert Church Sr. was a wealthy black businessman, and he would breathe life back into the city after buying large pieces of land, primarily on Bill Street. Bill Street would become a central gathering place for blacks, and Church built Church Park and Auditorium. His son, Robert Church Jr., began the NAACP in Memphis in 1917. He also founded the Solvent Savings Bank, which became the largest black-owned bank in the world by 1921. In the late 1800s, a church was built in downtown on South Main Street. The church thing never really worked out, and the two-story building opened as a sundry shop and pharmacy owned by Abe Plow. Abe was born in Tupelo, Mississippi in 1892. His father Moses moved the family to Memphis the next year. When Abe was 16, his father lent him $125 to start his own business, which he opened as the Plow Chemical Company. Can you imagine your dad loaning you $125 when you're 16 and you start a business? I'm not in today's day and age, usually not. He had learned the drug business working for free at George V. Francis Drugstore. His first product was an antiseptic healing oil he created himself. Success came quickly and soon Abe branched into cosmetics. Aspirin was also added, and Abe's drug business even grew during the Depression. Abe would eventually incorporate and go on to build an empire, which would merge with Sharing Corporation to become Sharing Plo. While at the Main Street location, Plo created a product that could straighten the hair out. The product was a sensation from New York to New Orleans. People liked something that allowed them to slick back their hair. And a little fun fact is Abe developed Coppertone suntan lotion as well. With all this success, he decided to sell the building to two sister hairstylists who were running their salon upstairs, Ernestine Mitchell and Hazel Jones. It's kind of fun. It's almost like this is a road trip I need to take you on because it has Memphis and Tupelo. And for people who might not know the significance of that is Tupelo, Mississippi is where somebody that our host Diane absolutely loves was born. And Memphis is where he became the king of rock and roll. And that is Elvis Presley. That is true. I need to get out to see Graceland. Have not seen it yet. I have it on the list, I promise. Ernestine and Hazel decided that they would turn the place into a cafe. Since they had been renting space upstairs, they kept in mind that they could turn around and do the same thing now that they owned the building. And they had a good idea of what would bring in some good money. They invited some ladies of the evening to run the upstairs as a brothel. Ernestine's husband was a music producer and promoter known as Sunbeam, and he opened Club Paradise near his wife's cafe. 
He booked little-known acts such as Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, and Chuck Berry. You know, a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he booked some really big names into this little club paradise in Memphis. That's he, how big it was. Yes, he did. Those are like definite names of the, of the era. Then the acts and crowds would head over to the cafe for after parties filled with food, booze, and some fun with the ladies upstairs. Many of these acts would stay two blocks away at the Lorraine, which is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. This little dive developed a strong history with blues music. According to legend, Wilson Pickett and Steve Cropper put together two of their biggest hits here, Mustang Sally and The Midnight Hour. And I heard rumors that Ray Charles liked to maybe do a little bit of cocaine and go upstairs and hang out with the ladies there as well. But that could just be rumor. Could be. Club Paradise shut down in the 1970s, but Ernestine and Hazel's Cafe kept on running. The brothel probably did a lot to help keep the place open. By the 1980s, though, Ernestine and Hazel were getting older and it was harder for them to run the place. A man named Russell George bought it in 1992 after a friend took him there for some food. He convinced George that it would make a great bar. George was born and raised in Memphis, and although he was a white boy, he had a lot of soul. His parents raised him to be a dancer, and he had all kinds of moves. He could keep his torso upright and move his legs around like James Brown or Elvis. George even entered the James Brown Dance Contest at the Mid-South Coliseum when he was 10 years old. He was the only white kid there, and he was the one James Brown chose as the winner. His passion for dance moved to barkeeping, and by the time he was 15, he had opened a not-legal bar in an apartment that he dubbed Jefferson in the Rear. And you're thinking, who knows during that time, but in today's age, it would be a not-legal bar for more than one reason. 15-year-old owner, really? I know. Can you imagine? (laughs) I'm assuming he didn't have his liquor license. (laughs) I'm thinking probably not. It just blows the mind that you think, where in the world would a 15-year-old get this idea of, you know, I'm going to open a bar? (laughs) Wasn't it our nephew that said, get me a pole and some music and bam, we got a club or something like that? Because we were like, okay, where does he get this idea? And at that time, I think he was like 12. And I would just like to point out that that nephew comes from your bloodline. (laughs) Of course, we have a very interesting bloodline over here. Thank you. (laughs) When he was in his 20s, George helped open Murphy's Oyster Bar on Madison Avenue. He also joined the R&B band, the Memphis Icebreakers, as a dancer and became their manager. Now he was the new owner of the building on South Main Street, and he envisioned a place where B.B. King, Bo Diddley, and Jackie Wilson types would perform. He kicked out the prostitutes and restored the building. He decided to use the grill behind the bar to offer a one-item menu, and that was his famous Soul Burger. It was a standard burger, but what made it unique was its soul sauce, which is proprietary. George no longer runs Ernestine and Hazel's because he committed suicide upstairs in 2013. He died from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. George had been a skeptic when it came to ghosts before he owned the juke joint, but after only a short time there, he realized something weird was going on. It started with the haunted jukebox. Now, something that's really kind of weird about Ernestine and Hazel's website, their official website, I'm on there and I'm looking up histories and different things, and everything is in the present tense of that Russell George still owns the place. Even underneath his own name, there is nothing there that indicates that he is dead. 
I was reading some other articles and I came across a newspaper article that said that he had been found dead in Ernestine and Hazel's back in 2013. And then a little later, I found another one that had said that he had died from what they thought was an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. And I'm thinking, okay, the guy who's owned the place since 1992 killed himself in 2013. I'm looking at your website in 2017 and there's nothing there about that. That to me is weird. I just, why would you not indicate, maybe they just haven't bothered to update the website, but why wouldn't you indicate that the owner is no longer alive and still have everything as if he's still running the place? Maybe he is. Well, he could be. (laughs) He could be in ghost form. But I I just thought that was the strangest thing because when I found it, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't you think the website would say something or in memoriam something and nothing? So I don't know. I just thought that was really weird. But even weirder is the haunted stuff here. Now, most people might be tempted to claim that perhaps there is an electrical issue that causes the jukebox to play when no one has made a selection. And I know there are some places that they have it set up where the jukebox will just play if nobody puts in a song. I think I've been to a couple of those places in the past. Finding a jukebox in a place is pretty unique anyway. They don't have them in many places anymore. Uh, Kind of fun fact, I've actually put coins in jukeboxes in Tennessee. Oh, you have? That's cool. Mm -hmm. But what makes this even more unique is how would you explain how well these songs seem to match up with events that are going in inside the bar? Like people are talking about things and then a song will play that pertains to what they're talking about. For example, employees will tell stories that women will come in after they've had a divorce. And so they're talking to the bartender about their divorce and slamming back a few drinks. And then all of a sudden, Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E comes on. Or Leonard Skinner's That Smell played after a businessman came in and told an employee how bad it smelled after his co-worker threw up in a cab. I mean, what are the chances? Ooh, that smell. <laughs> is it coincident? Huh? That is that is odd. The group Paranormal Inc. investigated the bar and cut an EVP of a moan near the piano. And they also cut another moan on the recorder that was also audible to the investigators at the time. They do emphasize that the bar is similar to Bobby Mackey's and that it's very old with uneven wood floors and stairs and that this can unsettle equilibrium and make people feel out of sorts. Perhaps this causes a feeling that something paranormal is occurring. Memphis Paranormal Investigations have declared on their website that Ernestine and Hazel's is one of the most haunted places in Memphis. They claim to have captured on film the transparent face of a man at the top of the staircase. Another transparent man was filmed walking in front of the building and then entering the front door. The door of a second floor bedroom had a woman's face on it in another picture. A bartender who has worked at Ernestine and Hazel's for over a decade named Karen Brownlee wrote an article for Munchies in 2016. In this article, she shared that bizarre and unexplained stuff have happened at the bar the entire time she's worked there. The piano is played by itself, and she hears the sound of people walking around upstairs when no one's up there. She wrote, there was this guy who used to work here for 15 years. He went upstairs one day, and I swear, he came running down through the bar, out the door, all the way home. He will not go upstairs to this day. He saw something in here that scared him to death, man. He couldn't explain what it was. A cleaning guy claims that he hears voices all the time. Many times the voices say, here he is again, when he enters a room. Brownlee also backs up the stories about the jukebox. She claims that it's come on by itself many times and played what seemed like a random song, but then she and her customers will realize that the song pertains to something that they are discussing. 
She said one of the times her and her co-worker were talking about James Brown on the day that he died, all of a sudden the jukebox blared out of nowhere, scaring her half to death and started playing I Feel Good. Another time a paranormal investigator was in here talking about exorcism and stuff with Russell, and all of a sudden the song by the Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil, started playing on its own, I swear. Brownlee says that none of this activity scares her. There was one situation that did unnerve her, though. One time, she felt something touch her while she was standing near the jukebox. She warns people to not diss on the sisters when at the bar because one time some patrons did just that and all the lights started getting brighter, dimmer, brighter, dimmer until the bar ended up as bright as the sun. The people quickly left. Money bags have gone missing, apparitions and orbs have been witnessed, and disembodied whispers are heard. The most bizarre money bag story involved an incident that happened twice in one week. Someone was shooting pool and accidentally shot the cue ball off the table and it rolled under a couch. When the couch was lifted, a dusty and cobwebbed money bag was found. What makes this really weird is that the very next Saturday, another pool ball ended up under the couch and when it was lifted, the same money bag was there again. And this is a bag that had been missing for like five years and they had no idea what happened to it. That is crazy. There are stories that more than one prostitute killed herself upstairs. Russell George also killed himself upstairs. Ernestine and Hazel loved their little place. Could any or all of these people still be walking the rooms and hallways of this bar in the afterlife? Is Ernestine and Hazel's juke joint haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, it sounds like a good place to go get a soul burger. I've heard it's one of the best in town. So Sounds like our kind of place, too. Not too, not too fancy, just a good hole-in-the-wall, yummy food. And those are always the best places to eat or dives. I love them. On our next episode, we are going to be featuring the Old South Pittsburgh Hospital. This is also in Tennessee, so we're doing back-to-back Tennessee locations. We're going to be joined by Melanie Ramsey, who founded Military Veterans Paranormal. And these aren't just veterans. All of them are combat veterans that are in this group. We had a great time talking to her. She said some great things. Denise and I were rolling. She is no nonsense. Definitely no nonsense. I'm thinking boot to the chest. (laughs) That's one of my favorite lines. (laughs) And we get into talking about how unique it is for them to do investigations and how they might be some of the best people to do them. Just imagine the military going through and clearing areas and the kind of hearing that they have. These would be really great people to have on an investigation. We think you're really going to enjoy our interview with her. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get an email from Eric, and he says his last name rhymes with new, so I think it's Boo. Isn't that that's Eric a, Boo? That's a great name. <laughs> he could have just said it's what a ghost says kind of thing. I discovered your podcast about two weeks ago. I am a mailman, and I listen to you as I walk my route. And I told him, hey, one of our admins, Heather, is also a mail person. And I know we have somebody else in the Spooktacular crew that I believe is a post person or is married to a post person. I'm thinking it's Rose, but I'm not for sure. He said, I'm only up to show 57, but I love it. Keep up the good work and I'm sure I'll catch up in a few weeks. And then he suggested a person for our life and afterlife, which I think people would find very interesting. Then we also got a comment on the website from Ginger. Just signed up as an executive producer. I love your efforts to stay ad free. I like learning and hearing about the paranormal. And then the historical connections make everything even more real. Keep it coming, girls. 
And that leads me to let everyone know that we have produced our first little bonus video for executive producers who are giving at the $2 and above level. We featured Fort Brancus, which is haunted, and we're currently working on our next video. We're having a lot of fun making those, so I'm, I'm glad we've decided to add that on as an extra reward. Hope you guys enjoy them. want to thank Brianne for sending a book to me about Canton, Georgia and the hauntings there. That was great. Shout out to Karen over on Instagram. Thanks for your nice comments about us. And then we also got a follow-up from Cindy via message. And this was regarding um, podcast episode 97 on the Pythian Castle. Hello, I just listened to and enjoyed your podcast episode 97, Pythian Castle. And I'm wondering if you ever found your way to Springfield to visit the castle. I am the nighttime ghost tour guide and I can assure you the entire place is truly haunted. The experiences I've had there over the past two years are amazing. Halloween night in 2014, I went to the 10 p.m. ghost tour, and in the last room of the night, the boys' dormitory, a child's voice said hi to me as I took a picture of an empty corner of the room. Others in the room also heard it and confirmed the experience. He was so welcoming and friendly that I knew without a doubt that it was meant for me and that I was supposed to receive that amazing gift. And that's how I came to work there, and my life was forever changed. You should come not only for a ghost tour, but for an overnight investigation. So I think I've just got an invitation to tempt the spirits, Diane. Uh, It sounds like it to me. Yikes. (laughs) During our most recent weekend of investigating May 5th and 6th, so many EVPs were recorded, including my name, Eep. I haven't decided how I feel about that one yet. Anyway, thank you for getting the history right on your podcast. And just a bit of info, we know there were over 100 deaths during the Pythian years because we have the death certificates and obituaries. You should stop by and read them sometime. And so thank you very much for sending that, and we would love to visit. However, I don't know that I would do the investigation, but I would love to go on the tour. And for those of you who follow us on Instagram and Twitter or are part of the Spooktacular crew, Cindy had sent us a picture, and it was in the girls' dormitory. She had taken a picture, and there seems to be a black shadow that's following the tour group, and this was back in October of 2016. And uh, so we put it up for people's thoughts, and a lot of you seem to think that it looked pretty legit. I don't know what that was. It's very hard to explain. It doesn't look like something that could have been, quote unquote, doctored. Some people thought maybe somebody was closer to the camera there, and that's why they were a little blurry and looked dark. But the rest of the picture, it's not clear. Everything's kind of blurry in the picture because people are moving. But this is just really different than two of the girls that are in this line that are exiting the picture. And so it's very weird. And speaking of pictures, Jalen went to Andersonville. And she took some pictures and shared them with us in the Spooktacular crew. And let me just say, she is an amazing photographer and has an amazing eye. They are just haunting images. Very cool. And she shared these through her Purple Finch Caravans, which is, you can find that on Facebook. And I believe that is the name of her Etsy shop. So very cool. Thanks so much for sharing those with us. Yeah, it's an amazing photographer. So I need to get some of her eye. And I discovered another indie podcast this last week, and I've been binging it. It's about some weird stories and things out of East Texas, a place we happen to have just visited. Oh, that's cool. And it's called The Nowhere Dispatch. So you might want to check that out if you're looking for something new to put in your ears. We also have some reviews over on iTunes. This first one is from Liz. 1313131. Love it. Five stars. I definitely should have sat down and written a review much earlier. I've been listening for about a year now and really loved catching up on past episodes and now tuning in every week. 
I love the combination of history and the paranormal in this podcast, as well as the two hosts. You two do a great job, and it's clear to your listeners how much work you put in. Your podcast is what makes my workouts, commutes, and housework bearable. Thanks again. Well, thanks, Liz. We appreciate that. We have the magnificent Magana. Awesome. Five stars. Diane and Denise, I absolutely love your podcast. I've always enjoyed horror stories and really love the way you give them a historical context, adding to the creepiness. I drive the back roads to different ERs when I'm on call in CT in northern Westchester, New York, sometimes in the middle of the night. Yikes. And your stories add so much more excitement to my ride. Thank you and keep up the awesome work, Gerardo. Thank you, Gerardo. I'm assuming he's talking about ERs like emergency rooms? That's what I was thinking too, but I don't know if I'd want to be on back roads in the dark listening to spooky stuff. That would probably freak me out. And then we have another review from Canada. This one is from Paladin1, a fantastic show, five stars. I've only listened for a few months, but eagerly await each new episode. The coupling of historical events with the unexplained is the perfect intrigue and hair-raising stories to have you coming back every week. Congratulations on 200 episodes, ladies, to many more spectacular shows. Well, thank you so much for that, Paladin. Well, that is it for us. We want to thank you guys for tuning in for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank executive producer Robert Flood for increasing his donation. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Jalen Liddell, Laura White, Laura Law, Ginger Galloway, Tracy Buckman, Christine Diemer, and Mike Weiner or Weiner. I'm not sure exactly how to say that. Thank you so much. Sweet dreams.